to start a new series or study together on the topic of discerning the will of God. We're going to try and answer questions like this. How, how can I know God's plan for my life? Um, maybe that's something you've wondered before in the past. Maybe that's something that you think right now. Uh, how can I tell when God is leading me or guiding me to do this thing or that thing or to make a particular kind of decision? Um, or maybe you've wondered, how is it that God communicates with us? How is it that He speaks truth into our lives? So um, you've asked you know, what is God's will for me in this particular situation or this particular decision or this, this kind of relationship? So this is, the, this is the class or a study that we're going to focus on that subject itself, uh, that you can know God has a plan for your life and, uh, and you can know what that plan is. And so this just kind of outline what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. We're going to, basically we're taking a, a seven-week study. We're going to try and mash it into just a, the weeks that we have available to us. Uh, the, the study itself is coming from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and uh, it's one of the core studies that all of their members go through. And as I was reading through it, discovered this is it's a good material, and it's helpful, and I think we'll, uh, we'll enjoy it. So uh, the course is outlined in this way. The first section, or the first uh, time, this, this is what we're look, looking at tonight, is on the doctrine of the providence of God. And so God is providentially involved in every area of life. Uh, God is sovereign. God knows what's going on. Nothing comes as a surprise to God. He is fully aware of everything. And so when we think about that particular subject, the providence of God, if we have a deficient, deficient view of that subject, if we don't recognize God being sovereign God of all of the universe and every single life, uh, then that affects then the way that we attempt to live our lives, and it, uh, it affects the way that we understand the will of God for our lives. Uh, so the next, next week we'll look at uh, exactly what God's will for your life is. Uh, so when we look at that particular subject, just really simple, uh, it is this. The scripture, this is what it says, that, the, that you should be united to Christ in perfect holiness, entirely free from the corruption of sin for all eternity in God's unmediated and uninterrupted presence. Uh, that's what the word of God says, that this is God's will for you. And so that helps us understand then uh, the smaller things in our life um, or the, the furniture of our life, if you will. The decisions that we make, the jobs that we take, uh, the kinds of relationships that we have, uh, that overarching will of God in your life affects then the way that you understand those things. Uh, the next section will ask how God speaks to us in order to lead us in the way that we should go. Uh, and that's where we'll, we'll talk about uh, the Word of God. Uh, how do we know the will of God? Well, we know the will of God not based on just emotional kinds of feelings, uh, but we know the will of God based upon what God has said in His Word. So He makes Himself very clear in His Word. Uh, he tells us what we need to know and gives us, through His Word, wisdom and discernment. Uh, the next section will uh, consider how the church and other kinds of Christian relationships help us to discern the will of God in our life. And then we'll look at the Christian and this world. So when we live in a world that is ungodly or wicked, um, when we are tempted, as we talked about on Sunday, to walk in the counsel of the wicked or to stand in the way of sinners or to sit in the seat of scoffers, when we're tempted to do those things, how is it then that we can live in this world, discern what God's will is, and do the things that He wants us to do, that He commands us to do? So, 
So that's kind of a, a really brief outline of what we're going to try and tackle over the next several weeks. Uh, so we're going to look together this week and then most of the Wednesday nights in May about this subject, uh, except for the last one. We're going to do something a little bit different on that last May um, Wednesday night. We're going to have a cookout instead of talk. So it'll be a good time. All right. So tonight, what we're going to focus on, and throughout this kind of study, we're going to look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there, you can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll have most of the passages of Scripture on the screen. And we'll just kind of walk through those together. Uh, but in Ecclesiastes, uh, we see that, uh, that it matters what kind of decisions you make in your life. Uh, and one thing that we know for sure is that all of us, and this is what Solomon is kind of coming to the conclusion of, is that all of us, regardless of who you are, regardless of uh, your physical health, regardless of your um, st- stature, regardless of your, uh, your job or your affluence or whatever, all of us will eventually die. Um, that's the kind of, death kind of levels the playing field for every person. And so when we look at this life, we have to then begin to think, you know, how does the inevitability of death how does that affect, then, the way that I make decisions? Um, does that make life meaningless? If, if life is only this long and I've only got this many opportunities to make these kinds of choices or this decision or have this job, how does uh, the reality of that then shape the way that I make decisions? Um, or does everything just become kind of um, vanity at that point? So there's a really good quote I want to share with you by a man named James Petty. And you may not be able to read that. If you can't read that, I'll read it to you. He says, the physical facts of the situation are not encouraging. Man seems very insignificant. The universe appears at present to be at least 12 billion light years across. Astronomers have gotten a glimpse of what they think are galaxies 90% of the way across that expanse, and yet only 10% of that matter is visible across the distance. The universe is so vast that there is an entire galaxy, many containing millions of stars, for every grain of sand on the earth. Then there are the unseen realms of heaven, created outside of time and space, where untold myriad of angels and other created beings dwell. Against that backdrop, one person's decision about a mother's living situation, a job, a school, or a mate, may seem incredibly insignificant outside the tiny, temporary sphere of our self-centered existence. Why would God be concerned with such fleeting details anyway? Why would it matter at all, since everyone and everything ends up dead? Are we just living in denial, ignoring all the evidence for the insignificance of our decisions? One man says that this is what we would basically call the beautiful illusion. So we think about everything that God has made, incredible, massive cosmos, all of the things happening just on our earth. Um, Is God really that concerned about the small choices in your life? Is he really that concerned about uh, your job or your career? or uh, the way that you act or respond in a given situation? Um, Is he really that concerned about who you marry? Um, Or the grandkids that you have and how you're helping to shape them? Whatever it might be, is God really that concerned with those activities? And what we'll find here in this study is that, yes, he is. He is very much concerned with your life. And so uh, when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 1 if you want to. If not, we'll have it on the screen. I'm sorry, it is a little small. I'll, uh, I'll adjust my slides next time to make sure that they're uh, a little bit larger. Um, when people read the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Um, some say that uh, it, it really is just kind of declaring that everything is vain. Everything is uh, meaningless and nothing really seems to matter. Uh, but when we come through this book, um, what we'll discover is that Solomon doesn't just, he, doesn't, he starts with that kind of idea, but he doesn't end there. Um, in fact, he ends with a very opposite idea uh, as, as that of, of vanity. He ends with basically the concept of everything is meaningful. Everything matters. And everything matters because of God, because God is the one who made everything. And God does have a plan for your life. Uh, he has a plan for all of us. Uh, down to the very smallest details, he has a plan for every day. Um, God knows when you're going to wake up. God knows uh, when you're going to die. God knows all of the steps in between those, all of the decisions that you will make. Uh, God has a plan for you to, to live your life according to uh, his plan so that he receives the glory from it. So, let's look together at this passage of Scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We'll read through them. We're going to go back and kind of walk through them together. Uh, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. What a way to start a book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. No, it has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So, it starts this book off with, uh, well, pretty depressing words. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Uh, nothing is what it seems. Nothing really is that great and important. Uh, so in verse 1 there, he says, he says, this is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So what we do know is this is the words of Solomon. And this book, the Ecclesiastes, is not just like a bunch of random proverbs put together. Um, it's not just a, a, a contributions from different people coming together. No, this is all from Solomon. Solomon is the only son of David that ever was king in Jerusalem. And so here Solomon is writing from the wealth of his wisdom that God has given him to tell his sons, his children, his people uh, what it means to understand how God uh, is involved in your life. And so he begins this saying, this is the words of the preacher. He's going to preach a message to us. And he says uh, who he is. So he's the king and the son of David. So he sets the scene. Look there at the second verse. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So literally he's saying, 
Vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless. So if, if something was in vain, he's saying that this is in vain of in vain. This is worthless. This is, uh, everything is just completely and utterly meaningless, fleeting. There's no substance. He says it's, it's like a, a vapor, a breath. Um, it's here right now, but then in a moment it will be completely gone. It's just, it's leaving us. So there's no significance for anything. He, uh, he says it's worthless. So when we think about life, everything, he says, is, is worthless. It's insignificant. And so the preacher says this is true of all of life. All is vanity. And not just vanity, but vanity of vanities. So he, you begin to think about the questions. He says, if everything is worthless, everything is vain, then what profit is there to be made? Um, what hope is there to be had? What gain, what return could you possibly hope for? What increase? What advantages? When Solomon looks at his life, what advantages does he have really over uh, just this poor farmer that lives in his land? Um, he's got everything you could possibly want as a king. Um, he's, got, he's got gold and silver. He's got horses. He's got houses. Uh, he's got statutes. He's got wives. He's got children. He's got everything that a king would want. But he says it's all meaningless. It's all insignificant and worthless. So, let's read on. Verse 4. Maybe. That's strange. Okay. A generation, nope, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, look, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Okay, so he's saying all of this stuff that happens in the world, all of the created order continues to function and to run as it always has, but each generation of people come on the scene and then quickly leave. So the world itself continues to spin, the water in the rivers continues to flow, the ocean continues to go in and out with tithe. Um, everything happens as it should. But generation after generation of human people, they come to the earth, they're born, and they quickly, in 70 to 100 years, they're completely gone from the earth. So we're the thing that continues to, to, uh, to wash away. So what is then the point of life? The earth abides, the sun always rises, the wind blows, the rivers flow. And that's what we see in verse 9 means when it says there's nothing new under the sun. All these things just continue to happen. Nothing new really happens on this planet. The created order is just as it always has been, and it will always remain that way. He says there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Is that the next one? There we go. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance 
of later things yet to be among those who come after. So in all of the stuff that continues on, we do not. People do not. Verse 4 says, one generation passes away and another generation comes. And who remembers them? No one. No one remembers them. So what's the point of life, is what he's saying. If nobody remembers that you are here, then what's the point? Nobody cares whether or not you lived or died 200 years from now. What is the meaning of all of this? All this talk about God's will for your life seems to be pointless because life really doesn't seem to make a difference. You didn't make a really a, a very big in, impact. So soon enough, all of us will be dead. What, what then is the impact of our life? Nobody would remember us in a couple hundred years. I mean, just think about it. Oftentimes people say, well, you know, people remember, you know, your family history, you know, your ancestry. Um, I remember that my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was named Henry, but that's all I got. I think he's from England. I think he's from Ireland, but anyway, we won't go there. But what the case is, you know, nobody remembers people that have gone on. I mean, think about it. How many, how many people can you name and their accomplishments from the 6th century? We might get a couple. Yeah, I mean, our, let's pick a century. What about the, the 10th century? The 3rd century? Okay. Yeah, the, the point being, we got maybe one, maybe we get three, maybe we get ten. How many millions of people lived in the fourth, fifth century? Millions. And we got like ten that, that are memorable. That something they did actually, actually meets us here and we know what they did. Friends, all of us sitting here in the room, we're probably not going to be of the ten in a thousand years, in five hundred years. Right, me too. Me too, right? So like, so what I'm saying is, look at this. What's the point? Nobody's going to remember that you ever lived on this earth. Then what's the point? This is what Solomon is saying. Now, look at the qualifications that he gives. Now, we'll look at uh, down 12 down to chapter 2. Um, he addresses this issue. Now he begins to kind of focus on several different aspects of it. So he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. It is an unhappy business that God has given me to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So he says, once again, everything is vain. He has... He has, what he says, grasp after the wind. I mean, it's almost like that dog. You know, you, you, you take a dog on a trip, and he's hanging his head out the window, and he's trying to eat the wind. Um, does he ever get full? No. No, because he can't get a hold of it. He can't bite it. He can't swallow it. The wind just continues to go past him. He said, this is the same thing. All of the stuff that we put in our life, um, he says, is vanity. It's just grasping after stuff that's not even there, trying to hold on to something that will soon be gone. It's a striving, a chasing after the wind. And Solomon, all he sees is vanity everywhere. And he's going to recap for us now in the next couple of verses 
the places that he's looked to see if he could find meaning in those places. So the first thing that we see is wisdom. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Wait a second. My slides are messed up. I know that he starts with wisdom. Okay. Well, it's in verse 16 down to verse 18. He says, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also, and also of madness and folly. So he says, I, I invested myself in wisdom and knowledge, but I invested myself in, in folly and, 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 and silliness and stupid stuff and madness. He says, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So he, he tries to pursue wisdom, tries to pursue knowledge. And this is something that's relevant for us, right? We, we agonize over uh, where we want to go to college or, we, or where we have gone to college or how much we read or how much we study or how intelligent we are or, or, or any of those kinds of things. We fret over that, uh, where we send our children to school, where they go to college, where grandchildren are going to school and going to college. Um, we, we care intensely about wisdom. We care intensely about knowledge. But Solomon here, he says that the whole pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is just vain. It's just foolishness. It's, it's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind, regardless of where or how you're educated. He says it's just worthless, completely worthless. Then he goes on and he talks about, he tries, not only does he try to pursue meaning and wisdom, but now he's pursuing, oh, there, there's the wisdom that was supposed to be highlighted. Now he pursues it in pleasure. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he says, I tried wisdom. Well, I'll just try folly. I'll try pleasure. I'll see what I can do. So he, he puts himself out there. He starts trying to experience everything that he possibly can. So he's, he becomes a hedonist, all about pleasure, doing whatever he feels right uh, to his body, a self-indulgent devotion to pleasure and happiness. And what does he find? Vanity. Complete vanity. Everything's gone. Laughter quickly turns. Madness, foolishness. He tries wine. He looks for anything that will be worthwhile and meaningful. But he comes to the end of all that and he says, it's all just vain. It's just vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. So then he looks at his work. He says, I made great works. And he did. He says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was vain. All was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he tries to find 
that elusive meaning in what he's going to do with his work, his life. Now, oftentimes we, we, we try that too. Um, what, whatever we're doing as a job, we try to, in, we try to find meaning of, for life. You know, whether that's being a homemaker or whether that's being uh, a person who goes to work 8 to 5 and works at a company or a factory or whatever it might be, we, we try to find that meaning, that purpose in life in doing the thing that we do. And what Solomon is saying is, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. Now, let's think about that just for a moment. It says here, talking about Solomon's work, he, he kind of outlines it. He says, what, what did Solomon do? What, did, what were his works? He presided over many judicial matters. He, he united a kingdom. He expanded the kingdom's borders to sizes larger than it had ever been before. He headed a huge administration of governors, judges, chiefs, officials, officers, captains, commanders, and armies. He built a fleet of ships. He established peace and trade with numerous otherwise hostile neighboring countries. He fortified cities with walls and gates. He brought in great economic prosperity, so much that it was said that silver and gold were as common in Jerusalem as stones. He, made the, he built the temple that his father, the great King David, could only dream of making. Then when all of it was done, he looks at it and says, it's just vanity. All of that. I mean... I mean, we have, I have never accomplished that much stuff in my life. And I know everybody in here, we wouldn't have accomplished that much. We'd be the president or something. We'd have a, a bigger job than we have right now. But he says, all of that stuff, everything that I've done with my life is just completely vanity. Vanity of vanities, a grasping after the wind. No profit at all, he says. No profit at all. All of it is pointless. Now, I mean, it would be different if Solomon was like, the poor farmer looking at the king saying, it's all just vanity of vanities. You know, there's no point in anything. But here, Solomon's not just like a, a poor beggar who's just really upset with the world and the hand that he got dealt. Solomon's the, the, the greatest king Israel ever knew. Solomon's the most wealthy man in all the world. Solomon's the wisest man in all the world. And here he's saying, you know, I've tried it all. I've tried everything. And there's nothing of purpose. There's nothing of meaning. So look at the next verse. Verse 12 down to verse 16. He says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and follow folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. Um, so he says... So there is benefits, right? So he looks at wisdom and folly and he says, well, wisdom does have its benefits temporarily. He says, uh, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So what is he saying? He's saying that, you know, I, tr- I thought, well, maybe wisdom is beneficial in some regards, but in the end, what happens to the wise man happens to the foolish man. Both of them end up dead. Both of them are equalized. So what is the point of being wise if you just end up dead and forgotten also, just like the fool? So, look at verse 
Let's see, what is Solomon's reaction to the endless quest? So all of these things are kind of coming to his mind. What is he saying? First thing he says is that he hated life. He hates his work. He begins to despair. He saw his days as full of pain and grief with no rest. And he hated it because it's so vain. Empty. (laughs) We'll get, we'll get, gets better, I promise. If it doesn't get better, then let's just all go home right now. Okay. There we go. He hates everything. It's all just pointless. There's no purpose whatsoever. But then we kind of get to the turning point. This is the turning point. So be encouraged. Verse 24. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give one, only to, give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving, striving after the wind. So, Solomon's flow of thought through the book, he begins by affirming that the created order continues on forever while man can, can come and go. And all the work that people do in this short lifespan means nothing in the end. Um, because everybody finds their way in a grave anyway. And nothing he can do between birth and death has really any lasting significance. And so everything is, is there's no value in everything. But here's the key point. Verse 24 through verse 26. He's going to lay out the solution for us here in this, in, this, in this verse. So everything is vanity under the sun. Now why does he change his tune here? Look at the words in verse 24. He says, he says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now if we stopped there, um, you'd basically just be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, Right? But then he goes on. He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So he says, the link, the the encouragement, the hope, the purpose comes because of God's hand. God is the one who causes these things to happen in your life. So what causes you to have Hope, what causes you to have joy, what causes you to have significance. I think Solomon would say it's perspective. Perspective. We do the same things, but what makes life meaningful is having the right perspective on who God is and what God has done. So it's knowing God, knowing the truth about God. So a man, he says in verse 24, can do nothing better for a person then should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But then he says, but it's from the hand of God. And that hand of God changes everything for our lives. All right. So up until this point, Solomon's been looking at life through the lens of a natural man. And so from the natural perspective, the way that we see everything going on in our life, if we're living from our own perspective, a perspective that is based on what is best for us, that is centered on the self, that is centered on what is most convenient, what will make us the most happy, give us the most pleasure, um, elevate us and honor us. He says, then all of that is meaningless and vain. But 
the one who is remembered, God, he injects purpose into everyday life. Um, So the things that we are doing, so when he says you eat and drink and find enjoyment, uh, the toil that you do, he's not just talking about eating and drinking, he's talking about just the mundane. That's what he's talking about. That the, the mundane in your life, changing diapers, taking out the trash, going to school, going to work, airing up your tires, whatever it is, God injects purpose into it, provides meaningful reality to your life because of who he is. He is sovereign over all things, even the small things of life, like choosing what to eat and choosing what to wear and to do. So, if it wasn't the case, if God's hand wasn't over everything, then everything really would be meaningless and vain. There would be no purpose to anything. But with him, there is purpose and there is hope. So in verse 26, it says, To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. That is vanity. So if you're gathering and collecting only for yourself, and you don't have the perspective that God gives those who follow him, the wisdom and knowledge and joy that comes through God, then everything really is vanity and a striving after the wind. So the point in all of this is that God is sovereign creator over every single thing in your life. That's why it's so important. Like if, if, it's, if God isn't sovereign over your life, um, then it, the choices that you make, um, the decisions that you make, trying to discern the will of God, would be nearly impossible. But the fact that God is always right and always good and always sovereign over your life um, means that we can know what it is that he wants us to do, what he wants us to experience. And he's sovereign over every single aspect of our lives. When we look at the theme of the book, the theme of the book is that meaning and purpose of life exist only because God has ordained all things that come to pass. And we must trust God and enjoy God and revere God and not worry about the things that will happen. That's what Jesus is talking to the disciples about in Matthew chapter 6 when they're worried about all kinds of stuff. And he says, don't be anxious. Um, Believe in God. If God is willing to clothe the flowers of the field better than Solomon himself was clothed, um, then trust God. And seek after him and his righteousness and his kingdom. And then all of these other things will be added to you. So, when we look at chapter 3, Solomon affirms God's total sovereignty down to the smallest of details of life. Um, verse Verse 1 is full of those kinds of words that again show that there is meaning and worth in life. So let's, let's look at chapter 3, down verses 1 through verse 8. He says, there is, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, 
a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Thank you. A time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Oh, I went too fast. Okay. Some of those, I hope that you laughed because I thought it was funny. Especially the cat with the bird in the mouth. Time to give up. Okay. All right. So what we see, though, is that God is intimately involved in everything. He's not that, that uh, clockmaker who just kind of wound everything up at the beginning and set it on a shelf and let the universe go on about its business. No, God is intimately involved. God knows about every single one of us. God has a plan for each and every one of us. And all of the aspects of our life, Solomon's saying that God is intimately involved in these. He is sovereign over everything. And that shapes then the way that we understand his will. And it helps us then be able to discern his will. If he is sovereign, then he has a plan. And if he has a plan, that's what we want to discover. All right. So it has a lot to do, he says, with this guidance and decision-making, this idea of sovereignty. We need to understand that nothing happens outside of God's perfect providence. God does have a plan for your life. He's seeing it through. He's working his purposes out. And you're not powerful enough, even in your mistakes and most sinful decisions, to overthrow it. So even in the mistakes, you're not more powerful than God. God's plan will happen. He is sovereign, and we are not. So, we rejoice in his goodness. We rejoice in his sovereignty. We are not anxious. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. We should not be anxious people. And there's often a a, a misunderstanding of the notion that that God has a plan for your life, um, but that that we kind of mess that up, or we kind of think that we can mess that up, and so as a result, then we might not get to experience God's best for us, God's plan A. So we mess up, now we're off to plan B. And we're having to do the things that we wouldn't have had to do if we'd made right choices in the beginning. Um, What that does is it undercuts God's sovereignty. God isn't surprised by the decisions that we make. God is fully aware of what is happening. God has planned it. God is sovereign. He knows exactly what is going to happen. We cannot trump the sovereignty of God. If we could, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. So when we look at, you know, people in the Bible, we look at lives in the Bible. Daniel, um, this man who was a holy man, godly man, but someone lies and sins against him, throws him into a lion's den, but God is not deserting him there. It's not as though God was surprised and thought, oh, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to close these lions' mouths. Didn't expect that. No, God knew what was happening. Job, the man God held out to Satan as an example. He's described as a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He lost almost everything. Lost almost his entire family. But in his later days, it says that he is more blessed than he was at the beginning. Moses, who got angry, took his staff and whacked a stone. It cost him the ability to enter into the promised land. Yet, described after his death as one 
whom the Lord knew face to face. And finally, David, a murderer, an adulterer, who disobedience brought tremendous consequences on his family, the kingship, yet when he died in his old age, says that he died with riches and honor. So it's not as though their decisions, their mistakes, were able to trump God's promises, that they were able to overcome God's sovereignty. He is the one who is sovereign over all things. And this is taught all throughout the scripture. Time ago. We look at just a couple of passages. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. You can write them down if you want to, but uh, we'll just read them really quickly. There's several of them. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. Notice the secrecy of God's will. God knows what is happening. God is sovereign. He, he understands. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He doesn't get his approval from man. He doesn't ask for our permission to do what he wants to do. He's completely and utterly sovereign. Psalm 135.6, the Lord does whatever he pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Isaiah 14.27, for the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? What he's saying is no one can. Once God decides to do something, it will happen. It will be done. No one can thwart him. Nobody can change him. Isaiah 43, 13. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he, he says. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot being kind of like the die that was thrown into the lap of the, the person trying to discern the will of God. It's not by luck. It's not by chance. Everything is under God's Decision. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. We, we want to do a lot of things, but God's will, God's purpose, that is what will prevail, not our will. Romans 11.36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we all live. So God's sovereignty extends to even us and our lives and everything about our lives. Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his step. So we, we work together with God, as God is out, out planning out and bringing about His sovereign plans, we are working together with Him. We are discerning His will and doing the things that He desires for us to do. Psalm 32, eight, verse 8 down to verse 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Jeremiah ten twenty three. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. 
So all of those are saying very similar things, but what we ought to come away with that is we should know God, when he sets his mind to do something, it happens. God is absolutely and utterly sovereign. And so it's not as though God flip-flops and changes his mind. And so that gives us kind of the foundation, a confidence then, that we can, when God reveals it, his will, we can know it. We can experience God's blessing and will in our life. So, as we kind of wrap this up as a conclusion, what have we learned so far tonight on the subject? Well, number one, that God is completely sovereign and there are no limits to his sovereignty. He is completely and utterly sovereign. There are no limits to him whatsoever. And then secondly, that all is indeed vanity without a sovereign God to provide meaning. So if we have a God that isn't completely sovereign over every minute detail of our lives, Solomon says, it's just vanity then. Life and the events of our lives are meaningless without God, but that with God, the events of our lives have great meaning and significance. So don't ever think that the sovereignty of God is not an important matter for you on an everyday basis. The sovereignty of God, Solomon says, is the only thing that makes our lives make sense. Next week, we'll um, continue down this same path in Ecclesiastes. All right. Well, let's pray, and um, then we'll be dismissed. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much just for being who you are. And Lord, often it is really easy for us to forget that you are the sovereign one, that you are the creator, the one who reigns supreme over everything and everyone. It's so easy to forget that and to begin living our life as though we were the one who was making all of these decisions, changing the course of our life, changing the course of our history, and to think that we are the ones who are sovereign over our destiny. God, you are king over everything. From the most essential decisions that we have to make as moms and dads or grandparents or students all the way down to the everyday life, the small things that we don't even think about making decisions about. God, we thank you that you are not a God who just kind of wound things up and let it go, but you are a God who intensely cares and loves his creation. And Father, we echo Solomon's words that everything would be completely worthless if it wasn't for you. And so God, we thank you for creating us and for giving us purpose through your Son. And Father, we echo the words in Revelation 4, that worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power. And the reason is because you created everything. And by your will, they exist, we exist, and we were created. So God, give us grace. Give us wisdom as we attempt over the next few weeks to look at your word, to discern your will, and to study together. We pray these things in Jesus' name.